Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me. Box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. I do want to encourage you to check out our other podcast. In particular, I want to highlight the amazing world of radio over at amazing.greatdetectives.net. There we do a whole lot of different old-time radio miniseries as well as holiday specials and specials featuring the work of recently passed actors. Right at the top of the amazing world of radio, you can find an episode of Duffy's Tavern starring the late great Larry Storch and our summer series of one-man audio dramas. Again, you can check this out at amazing.greatdetectives.net and you can find all of the different podcasts we've done over at greatdetectives.net. Well, now it is time for this week's episode of I Hate Crime. This one is episode 20. The original radio broadcast date is 1949 or 50. Let's take a lesson. One minute I was just walking along. The next, I was hitting the sidewalk. I rolled and twisted my way into Rose Street. None too soon. I'd seen one of the gun flashes from the shadows of the GPO across Pitt Street. Holding my gun ready, I waited. There'd been only one or two people around, but there weren't any around anymore. A few minutes passed. When nothing happened, I went up Rose Street, turned into Castle Ray Street, grabbed a cab, went home. Why had someone taken a few shots at me? I hadn't the slightest idea. When I got home, I went to work on the scotch bottle. After a few minutes... Who is it? Connors. Who? Connors. Sergeant Alf Connors. Oh. Just a minute, Sarge. Hello, Kent. Hi, Sarge. Well, what have I done this time? Nothing. Well, how come you're visiting me at almost one in the morning? With a sort of a social call. Uh, yeah. Well, come in. Thanks. Uh, I uh, got you in the night shift, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Having yourself a little drinking session, eh? Oh, doctor's orders, Sarge. Uh, can I pour you one? I'm on duty. I've got some chlorophyll tablets. <laughs> no, thanks. Well, sit down. Yeah, I think I will. What's new at the CIB? Nothing much, except for an interesting report we got from one of our plainclothesmen. Oh? Slim Grogan. He was at Central Railway at 10 o'clock tonight. Uh, knowing you as well as I do, Connors... Yeah. I'd say that Slim Grogan has something to do with your visit. If I had a cigar, I'd hand it to you. What's up? Well, it could be trouble. For 
you. Uh-huh. What kind of trouble? Remember Jay Thomas? Oh, there's one character I'll never forget. He's loose. Here? In Sydney? Yeah, that's right. Oh, that explains it. Explains what? Three shots were fired at me tonight, Connors. Where? In the city. I didn't see who did it. Thomas didn't waste any time. Well, let's get to what you were telling me about. Yeah, okay. Well, Slim Grogan saw Jay Thomas leaving a train at Central. There were two other blokes with him. Smith and Williams? Uh Uh-huh. Joe Smith, Pete Williams. Yeah, the terrible trio. Never expected to see them again, did you? I hadn't. Jay Thomas had been running Sly Grog in Sydney long before the days of 10 o'clock closing. He wasn't small time. He'd reached the top by getting rid of most of his competition. Some were bashed, others looked for new rackets when Smith or Williams showed a gun. Few were murdered and one or two disappeared completely. I'd worked against Thomas and his two meatballs, Smith and Williams. Finally, I'd been able to get evidence to send him to jail. But manslaughter was the best the law could do when Thomas was sent up for it. That was eight years ago. Smith and Williams, with no one around to give them orders, left Sydney. And now the three of them are back, Kent. For one reason. To get me. Too bad we can't prove that. Uh, Shots tonight proved it. Ah, not the way I mean. If I arrested Thomas, his solicitor would have him out in four hours. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, the best I can offer you is police protection. No, thanks. But I tell you, Kent... Cops make me nervous. But uh, thanks for the tip. Watch yourself, Kent. Yeah, if you want us to help you, I'll well, send you a telegram. It's your funeral. So long, Ken. I was up at the usual time the next morning. It was a slow day at the office. Made a court appearance at three, checked again at the office, and had a few drinks. Then... Went to my favorite cafe for dinner. You don't mind if I share your table, do you? Why, no, not at... Not at all. Thank you, Mr. Kent. I must be getting famous. I saw your photograph in Personality magazine. Well, I didn't see yours anywhere, but uh, I should have. Full length. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, not me, not me. You you want to thank Mother Nature. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, what's your name? Gloria. Gloria Stanton. Gloria, huh? What are you, uh, what are you doing after dinner? Well, I... I hadn't thought about it. Well, then you're not tied up? No. But now? Yes. And that was it. Fast and to the point. We went to Club 45, had a heck of a night. It was four in the morning when I took her home. She lived in a Maruba apartment building. I'd ask you in, but... Oh, that's okay, Gloria. Oh, it's been a wonderful night. There'll be others. I... I... Yeah? Larry. Larry. Well, what, what are you trying to say? 
I... I'm going to explain how this started. You don't have to. I think I know. What? You were hired to take me out. And there's the guy who hired you at the end of the hall. Harry, he's got a gun. So have I. Down! There's a stab of flame from the end of the hall. A bullet whistled by. I pressed the trigger. The guy twisted around, tried to lift his gun again. There was only one thing I could do. Larry. I'm okay. The guy was lying on his stomach. I put my toe under him. Roll him over. Yeah, he was Joe Smith. One down, two to go. And so that's it, huh? That's it, Connors. Oh, I was a fool. He told me he had a bet with a friend. Bet that I couldn't get Larry to take me out. <laughs> I wish I could have got a few hundred of that. <laughs> Coming from Sergeant Connor's, Gloria, that's a compliment. The fellow outside was the only one you saw? Yes. But we know who the other two are, don't we, Sarge? Sure. But if we arrest, they'd still be out inside four hours. Yeah. So, what do we do? If you're smart, you'll accept my offer of police protection. And lose my professional standing? Uh-uh. I figured you wouldn't be smart. Well, there's nothing more I can do. Will you be wanting me, Sergeant? Yeah. Don't leave town. All right. You can give me a lift home if you don't mind, Sarge. Okay. Larry. It's all right, Gloria. Oh, Larry, I'm so sorry about Forget it. Will I be seeing you again? Sure. Get some sleep. I'll give you a ring, probably tomorrow. All right, Larry. I went home and slept with my thirty-eight beneath the pillow. Nothing happened the next day except that Gloria and I went out again. During the week that followed, I took her out a few times. We, uh, we got to know one another, uh, pretty well. Larry. Um, Larry. Yeah. Nice girl, Gloria. I didn't describe it, did I? She had dark brown hair that was alive with red glints, small nose, big eyes, wide, generous lips, a figure. Look at Venus de Milo, had arms and make some general improvements all over, and that'll give you an idea, but only an idea. It was in the early hours of the morning. I'd garage my car was walking towards the steps of my apartment building. Hello, Kent. What? Don't go for your gun, dear boy. Mr. Williams and I are both holding revolvers. Well, oh, hello, Thomas. It's been a long time. But too long, dear boy. I've been so looking forward to this. <laughs> Thomas and his pet gorilla, Pete Williams, stepped from the shadows. Williams was big and ugly with a smashed face. Jay Thomas was tall, thin, scholarly. His gold glasses glinted in the light of a street lamp. His face was pinched and prison gray. Huh. 
He looked nothing like what he was. A cold-blooded killer. Um, you had a spot of luck with Mr. Smith, didn't you? He's not going to be so lucky this time. Quite, Mr. Williams. Uh, quite. Come on, let's get it over Please, with. Please, dear boy. Not so impetuous. Mr. Smith was impetuous, and, uh, alas, he's dead. Yeah, but, but... I was eight years in prison, remember, dear boy? After eight years, I deserve a few moments, don't I? What do you think, Mr. Kent? Well, as far as I'm concerned, you can talk for hours. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. But I'm afraid we can't spare all that time. Oh, you've no idea what a delicious moment this is. How I've looked forward to it. Dreamed of it. Let's put a couple of slugs in him and get out of here. I am making the decisions, Mr. Williams. As I've instructed you so many times in the past, you are not to question my actions. Understand? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's understood, Mr. Thomas. Fine. Look, uh, why don't you boys come upstairs and we'll have a nice cup of tea or something? Oh, he's so amusing. Isn't he, Mr. Williams? Amusing because he has only a few seconds in which to live, in which to regret having investigated me eight years ago. There was only one thing to do. Go for my gun and hope to get a few shots in before they burn me down. Aim low, Mr. Williams. I went into action, took a dive. Kill him! Kill him, man! I rolled on the sidewalk and into the gutter as the slugs whistled all around me. I jerked my gun out. No, it was too late. I wondered why I didn't feel the burn of bullets. Then an amazing sight met my eyes. Williams, bent low, was doing a staggering little dance along the curbstone. Thomas was nowhere to be seen. Into the lane after him. It was Connors. Sergeant Connors. Kent. I was never so glad to see a cop. Was that Thomas who got away? Yeah. Oh. All right, everybody, get out of the way. This is police business. I'll help you up, Kent. Come on. Thanks, Connors. Ah, I never, never thought I'd say this to a cop, but I love you. Connors, of course, had had a tail on me all the time. His shadows were pretty good. I'd never spotted them. Well, Jay Thomas made a clean getaway. An alarm went out for him. One of the newspapers even posted a reward. A couple of weeks passed, and he was still at large. We're sure he's still in the city, Kent. We've had every exit blocked. Yeah, but you can't keep that up forever. No. That's why I asked you to come here. We're badly understaffed, so we'll have to more or less drop the search for Thomas. Oh, it suits me. Just watch yourself. I said, yeah. That night. Larry Kent speaking. Gloria here, Larry. Well, hello. You've been neglecting me. I haven't seen you for two days. I was going to ring you in the morning. I was afraid you may have met somebody else. (laughs) Uh, Next time you start thinking like that, you just have a look in the mirror. 
the right thing, don't you? With you, honey, the dialogue is easy. Then you, you do like me a little bit? A little? Oh, more than a little. Tell me, Larry. Well, I, uh, I think you're terrific. Oh, can't you say more than that? Uh-uh. You just leave me speechless. <laughs> what do you say we go nightclubbing tomorrow, huh? Oh, I've got a much better idea. Tomorrow's Friday, and I know a wonderful boarding house in Bowery. A bo... Huh? I I've been there before. They always give me the same room in the south wing. I'm sure they'll have a nice room for you. In the north wing? Oh. <laughs> well, you're on. Shall I make the arrangement? Yeah, what time will I pick you up tomorrow? Oh, say about six at my flat. Right. Good night, Larry. At nine the next night, we were at the boarding house. It was the off-season, but there was still a good crowd. We chewed the fat for a couple of hours, had some drinks, dances, and hit the hay about midnight. At seven in the morning... Who is it? Come on, sleepyhead. Get up for breakfast and we'll try our hand at archery. Archery? Yes. We're having a competition later in the day. Oh. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be out in a couple of minutes. Right. I'll be waiting in the dining room. I used the electric razor, dressed, and joined Gloria. No one else was in the dining room. I thought we'd get an early start. I haven't been up this early for breakfast since the army. <laughs> It'll do you good. Yeah? Hey, I didn't know you were the athletic type. Oh, yes. I was a champion archer at Prue's for two consecutive years. Prue's, huh? What, uh, may I ask, is Prue's? A finishing school. Oh. Do you know how to use the bow and arrow? Hey, a little. I used to go to a place in the States called the Palisades Amusement Park. Sort of a glorified lunar park on the Jersey side at the top of the Palisades. They uh, had an archery stall, two bullseyes out of three, and uh, you got a Cupid doll. And did you win any Cupid dolls? Yeah, a couple. Oh, well, in that case, I'll enter our names in the pairs. Oh, here comes our breakfast. We ate, and then we got arrows and bows from the old dame who ran the boarding house. There was a pretty good archery range set up outside. I challenge you to a tournament. Okay. That center target. Three mm -hmm. arrows each. Uh-huh. If, uh, if I win, uh, what do I win? A kiss. Oh, how about uh, twice in a row? Kiss and a hug. Mm-hmm. Three times in a row? Don't get ahead of yourself. We started firing the arrows. Hmm, nice shot. Almost a bullseye. Your turn. Bullseye. Mm-hmm. Beat that one. You watch me. Yeah, very, very nice, Sarla. See if I can put one right alongside. Mm. 
must have spent a lot of time at that archery stall. <laughs> it was run by a couple of sisters. Both of them redheads. Oh, I begin to understand. It's your shot. Good. That's yeah, nice shooting. I'll have to score another bull to win. Well, don't miss, Larry. I'm looking forward to presenting the prize. Yeah, take it easy. You'll make me nervous. <laughs> Here goes. Congratulations. Well, never mind about the congratulations. Come on, let's uh, make with the prize-giving ceremony, huh? With pleasure. Mm. This is a, a nice game. I win even when I lose. Uh, things are getting interesting. Let's uh, continue the competition, hmm? <laughs> All right. Get the arrows. I reached out to pull an arrow from the target, but there were now seven arrows in the target. Larry, over there! About 50 feet away, standing beside a tree, was Jay Thomas. He was fixing an arrow to the string of a heavy longbow. I jerked his arrow from the target. It had a wicked-looking hunting point. He drew the bow just as I stepped behind the target. I fixed the arrow to my bowstring, stepped clear of the target, let go. My arrow got him on the left side. He turned oh. and ran into the trees. I pulled a few arrows from the target. Larry! I'm going after him. Call the cops. <laughs> His trail wasn't too hard to follow. He was bleeding pretty badly. I finally caught up to him in a, a little gully. He was sitting with his back against a rock. He still had the bow, but no arrows. <laughs> well, looks as though you win, dear boy. Yeah. Just a minute, let me take a look at that. Yeah, you hit pretty badly. Yes. I didn't think you knew how... how how to use a bow. Well, if you think you can make it, I'll take you back and no, see a doctor. No, 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 no. I, I'd rather stay here. It was only good to move me. Yeah? I know I, I'm finished. Mid-day boy. It's only a matter of time. Not worry much time. Uh, you're taking this in a very sportsmanlike way. Huh. Oh, fellow. What else can I do? You see? There was a second arrow on his side. I turned. <gasps> Gloria stood behind me. Larry, Larry, are you all right? Sure, I'm all right. What did you hit him for? I, I don't know. I, I saw him there and I... I... I was afraid for you. Uh, no, honey. You were afraid for yourself. Harry. You were working for Thomas from the beginning. Now, you were smart, real smart. Don't talk like that, Larry. When Joe Smith was waiting for me in your hallway, you started to give yourself an alibi. No. Yes, you did. Just in case I, 
I wasn't killed. But it's nonsense you're talking. It's not right, Larry. The second try at knocking me off came on another night when I when I took you out. Larry, you you couldn't. You don't really believe that. Well, if it's not true, how come Thomas knew I'd be here? I don't know. Perhaps he followed us. You've got to believe me. Larry, I never saw this man before. <coughs> That's a lie. Jay, it... Uh-huh. <coughs> Let's see you act yourself out of this one, honey. She's... She's a very... <coughs> excellent... Actress. Mr. Kent. How much were you paying her? Oh, I can assure you, dear boy... A good deal. You can't uh, prove any of that. I knew her before I <laughs> went to jail. She was only 17. I'll bet she was a perfect decoy for you. Oh, yes. Perfect, dear boy. Such an innocent, such a beautiful face. Men couldn't... <laughs> Resist her. That's right. Go on, keep talking. Every time you open your mouth, it's killing you a little more. And when you are dead, nothing can be proved. You and I are going back to the house, Gloria. We're going to get a doctor. Don't you see? It'll be too late. He'll be dead. Alas, my dear boy. She's right, you know. See, Larry? You won't be able to prove a thing. Maybe so. We're still going back. Whatever you say. Come on. Of course. Goodbye, Jay. Jay. Jay Thomas had pulled the target arrow from his side. The arrow Gloria had fired. Still with his back against the rock, he pulled the bow with the last of his strength. No. No. All she had to do was move, but she was frozen there. Jay. I took one look. She was beyond help. Never trust a woman. <laughs> Mr. K. Maybe you've got something there, Thomas. But not all dames are like Gloria. No, no, some are soft and cuddly. The only arrows you have to worry about where they're concerned are fired by the little guy named Cupid. <laughs> and when he hits you, good night. Welcome back. That may have been one of the deadliest archery scenes we featured on the podcast. Only episode I can think of that dealt really strongly with archery was the Robin Hood episode of Philip Marlowe. 
Putting another arrow into the last killer was probably an unnecessary move by his accomplice. First of all, he was uh, probably going to die anyway. Secondly, I doubt he would have revealed her as an accomplice. For one thing, it would not benefit him much at all. Typically, this is done to get a lighter sentence by turning in a more important criminal. Well, in this case, he's the big fish. So it's not going to benefit him at all. And he doesn't strike me as the sort of guy to do it just out of spite. I mean, for a homicidal maniac, he seems like a really nice guy. I mean, how many men who have spent weeks in a desperate vendetta will be thoroughly gracious in defeat as they lay blading out on the ground victims of their quarry and fondly refer to him as dear boy. It shows right there that there's a better class of psychopaths and he represents it well. I mean this guy is so honorable that he didn't decide to take on fair advantage of Larry and, you know, brought a gun along. I mean, his thought process must have been, I could bring a gun along and that would give me a better chance of shooting him. But I'm already surprising him, so using a gun, that just wouldn't be cricket. I mean, what a guy. She, uh, brought about her own death by misjudging this kind, gentle murderer. When Larry was shot at in the first scene, he referenced the GPO and being uh, near Pitt Street. Well, the GPO is a very interesting building in Australia and in its largest city. And I'm going to apologize in advance because last time I did an Australian program, I was informed that I was not saying the name of this city correctly. However, I'm going to try again, and I, I hope I don't say it incorrectly. I do know that you can have some very subtle differences. For example, in Idaho, people have an issue with folks who call our capital city Boise instead of Boise. So, the GPO is actually the general post office Sydney. Its primary material is Sydney sandstone, which was locally mined in New South Wales. It's built in a Victorian Italian Renaissance style, and its northern facade along Martin's Place uh, is 114 meters or 374 feet. It's a gorgeous piece of architecture. There are a lot of great pictures of it online. It was the headquarters of the Australian Post, certainly would have been in Larry Kent's time, and it continued with that status until 1996 when facilities were relocated and the building itself was privatized and renovation was done. So now it's a heritage-listed landmark building. And it's full of a lot of different shops, restaurants, and various offices. So, another example of I Hate Crime utilizing a local landmark to give the series a real authentic flavor. 
listener comments and feedback now, and we have an email from Nancy who writes in regarding episode 6, which we played back on September 20th. Uh, she said, uh, Adam, I must have been as excited as Sam to have Effie back today, uh, and I think that's the previous day's episode of Sam Spade, because I had to listen to the episode twice to be sure who had done it. And I almost went for a third listen as tomorrow's I Hate Crime sounded like another story that was done recently on another show. Please tell me I'm not losing my mind, okay? An Australian show doing an American rehash? Details, please. Well, Nancy, uh, this is an interesting question. Now, if the episode numbering that uh, has come down to us is correct. That episode was episode six. It was written uh, in 1949 or 50. And according to Ken Wayne, the star, he had enlisted the help of an American expatriate to help write the series. There are, I think, two main possibilities. Possibility number one. With many of these detective programs, there are a lot of very, very similar plots. And I don't think that that particular episode of I Hate Crime was, like, shockingly innovative. It's the type of story that any writer of detective fiction who was genre-savvy probably could have written. Now, depending on the show you're talking about, it's also possible that this guy could have heard the uh, program you're thinking of, and it just had been in his head. And he's having to think of mystery plot ideas, and he has an idea for a plot and general uh, direction that resembles a radio program that he heard, but doesn't remember that he heard. So he could have unintentionally been ripping off another script. It's the type of thing that happens to writers all the time. There's even a book on it called Deal Like a Writer. There is another possibility, and that is that he was ripping off American radio, although we don't have any reason to believe that this was the case. This type of thing did happen in the UK. There's an article on a website uh, called uh, Comedy Chronicles, and it was written by Graham McCann last year, and it was about a 1949 directive from the BBC in its first set of rules known as the Green Book, and uh, it contains uh, this uh, paragraph. There is and always will be a place for authentic American artist and material, but the BBC's primary job is light, light entertainment must be to purvey programs in our own native idiom, dialects, and accents. The Americanization of British scripts, acts, and performances is therefore most actively discouraged. Now, Mr. McCann looks dimly on some academics that have come along and, uh, according to him, not known what they were talking about and thought that this was you know, kind of a xenophobic or idea of uh, being insular to protect Britishness. 
Uh, and he writes, the fact is that as a number of writers and producers working at that time have since confirmed to me, there was a real fear of potential scandal lurking beneath the surface of these words. Yes, some of the BBC's executives were indeed unimpressed by hearing performers from Putney or Preston trying to sound as if they hailed from Brooklyn or Boston, and yes... Uh, they were also keen uh, to see more programs engage with distinctively British themes and situations rather than uh, ersatz American ones, but there was far more to it than that. They were also desperate to stop British program makers stealing from American shows. The practice, a kind of dark web of derivation, had been going on since the 1930s, throughout the Second World War, but by the late 1940s, it had spread alarmingly throughout British entertainment and was basically out of control. A whole generation of budding comic writers desperate to make a mark in the medium has realized that the easiest way to come up with an abundance of good quality material was to quote-unquote borrow it from American radio, where far more so than in Britain, whole teams of experienced writers were churning out masses of gags on a weekly basis. The main source of it all for the British was shortwave uh, radio. Warm up the wireless, they realized, and they could have American writers quite unwittingly supplying free scripts for British shows. And Mr. McCann goes on, and there's, you know, documentation and people he talked to who can confirm that this sort of thing happened. And that the Green Book didn't really fix things. Uh, there were developments in the UK, and then there was the fact that American radio programs were going away in the early to mid-50s, and coincidentally, in the early to mid-50s, you had a lot of very obviously British uh, programs uh, emerge, The Goon Show, Hancock's Half Hour, The Navy Lark, and many, many others that would really distinguish British comedy. So, is it possible that the unknown American who wrote I Hate Crime had a shortwave set and was listening to American crime dramas and then ripping off plot ideas? Well, it's possible. I thought that the plot in the I Hate Crime was relatively generic, that I wouldn't necessarily feel that that was very probable. Now, of course, that's not to say that all script reuse would be something like that, because, of course, many American scripts were bought and adapted to Australian audiences due to Australian laws at the time, which... Uh, regulated the importation of non-Australian entertainment. But with I Hate Crime, that's just not how that series worked. It was noted for being a series that was uh, an original written in Australia. And so, yeah, they, they wouldn't be importing scripts from the States. So, I lean towards coincidence, but if anyone has any conflicting information, I would uh, definitely be open to hearing it. Alright, well now let's go ahead and thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Jeremy, Patreon supporter since February 2016, 
currently supporting us at the detective sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, Jeremy. And that will do it for today. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, you can do so using your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spreaker, or the Amazon Music app. Uh, store at amazon.com slash otrdetectives. If you are enjoying this podcast on YouTube, be sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and mark the notification bell. Join us back here next Tuesday for another episode of I Hate Crime, but be sure to listen tomorrow for Dangerous Assignment, where... Yes, I want very much to talk to a friend of Kreutzer and Peters. Why? Because they skip out of here without paying their bill. Now, if you are a friend of theirs, maybe you pay for it. Well, how much is it? Room and board, three days for the two of them, $30. So they only stayed here three days, huh? Yeah, and that is not bad enough for them to skip out without paying. They have to check in at the Atlas Hotel for another day, but they pay over there. Wait a minute, let's get this straight. They leave this boarding house, check in at the Atlas Hotel, and leave again after a day there? Yeah, yeah. Well, how long ago did they spend this day at the hotel? Three days ago. Did they leave any forwarding address there? No, that I check. The clerk is a friend of mine. But he told me that they leave no address. Now, about this money they owe, you take care of it? Well, I'll make a deal with you, Mrs. Ludwig. I'll take care of their bill if you can give me any more leads about them. Uh, leads? What is this lead? Well, what I mean is... Well, I thought you told me you were going to clean up my room this day. I am. I can't do two things at once, Mr. Campbell. I get round to it as soon as I have time. Well, for the price a man pays here, he's a right to expect a little service. You don't like it here, you move. I have a good mind to. Hey, hey wait a minute. Uh, Are you addressing me? Yeah, look, you're a boarder here. Maybe you heard the two guys I'm looking for talking about where they were going. Without knowing whom you're looking for, I couldn't say. This is Mr. Mitchell. He says he's a friend of Kreutzer and Peters. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to... Box 13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.